The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, Protecting Yourself with a Personal Privacy Audit, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California Legislature. She served as a privacy expert for numerous court cases nationwide and at a White House press conference featured on C-SPAN. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, today our show is about cyber investigations, and we know that is so huge when we've been hearing about security breaches all over the world, especially in our country. We've just heard about the big uh, anthem recently with 80 million people. So we're hearing about it daily at the healthcare, you know, in the health sector, in the financial sector, in insurance, at, at universities. It's just a huge issue. And then, of course, there's the infrastructure that we're worried about. Uh, are there going to be cyber attacks on our water supply, electric? So this is a huge issue, and we have a fabulous guest coming to us from the East Coast. Let me tell you about Ron Plesko. He is an advisory principal and the national lead of the KMPMG Cyber Investigations Intelligent and Analytics Practice. And this is a company that that does audit, tax, and all sorts of advisory firm. He's going to tell you more about the firm, but he has done great work um, in intelligence, analytics, and cyber investigations. And he is an internationally known information security and privacy attorney with 17 years experience in cyber investigations, information assurance, privacy, identity management, computer crime, and emerging cyber and computer threats and technology solutions. Ron joined KPMG in 2012 after a very distinguished career in the private and public sectors. And prior to joining KPMG, Ron was the CEO of the National Cyber Forensics and Training Alliance. The acronym is NCFTA. And that's where I met him. And he managed the development of intelligence that led to over 400 worldwide cybercrime arrests in four years. And it prevented, and that prevented over $2 billion in fraud. So we're really excited to have him joining us from the East Coast. Thank you, Ron, for joining us. Uh, well, Marty, thank you. I uh, appreciate the opportunity and look forward to uh, talking to you and uh, to your listeners. So, Ron, you know, how is it here you're an attorney and you're a cyber and security and privacy expert? How did that all come together? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and uh, believe me, it wasn't my career track. I, I uh, came out of law school, became a prosecutor, and, and in short time found myself prosecuting back in 1993 and 94 computer crime cases and some challenging times with some judges not understanding exactly what was going on inside the, the, the uh, bigger computers and at the really the advent of the Internet. Didn't understand Internet-related chats and things such as that, and sort of took it upon myself to educate prosecutors, judges, and uh, alike on those issues, and that really launched, launched me into a career on, uh, at the confluence of law, privacy, and technology. So how did you get to be such a techie, though? You know, law school, we, <laughs> you know, in those years, uh, we didn't learn that much about technology. I, I surely didn't lo- learn technology in law school. So how did you get to have that expertise in security and technology? Sure. Uh, a lot of, a lot of that was self-taught, uh, Mari, uh, and uh, I'm a child of the 80s, so during the 80s, uh, I played a handful of sports. I also had a couple of computers and was talking worldwide back then when you had to work to get on the Internet uh, via bulletin board systems and uh, early day Internet relay chats. And then uh, when I ended up going to law school, uh, I chose my law school based upon an AT&T uh, uh, scholarship campus of tomorrow tomorrow scholarship where because I was such a geek uh, we were able to get a every year a free uh, laptop uh, 286 386 and 46 <laughs> back, back then when you had to break your shoulder to carry a laptop right right <laughs> wow that's great yeah so that's that's yeah that's great that you were already excited about that what a what a perfect blend what a great place to be now you're so i'm sure you're so in demand so let's discuss the types of cybersecurity consulting services that kpmg has you know people think about that you know your your company as being an auditor right so how did they get into the cybersecurity stuff Sure. I, I think, you know, first and foremost, I, I agree with you. People think KPMG, I came in two years ago, and they, they think KPMG, the, they think of maybe a golfer or one of our spokesmen or women, and then they also think audit or tax. But KPMG has a huge advisory consulting practice, and underneath that they have a risk consulting practice. And I, I'm part of the risk consulting practice where we assist our clients through dealing with business risks, et cetera. And our clients are really mid-cap to large-cap market clients, so Fortune 500, even smaller clients than the Fortune 500. And the way we break down our service offerings is along a bunch of different lines, but I think more pertinent for this conversation is really from a cyber service or what we call cyber services that deal with information security. We break, we break our services down to assist our clients with cyber strategy, visioning, you know, where are they going, transforming their cyber processes, enabling technologies to help them operationally, and then also identifying and prioritizing what their risks are inside the network, external to the network, and really detecting those risks, and then leading the response to those risks. I What I own inside of KPMG nationally is to the left of incident, how do you, how do you know who's coming after you, threat actors, organized crime, nation state, non-nation state, activists. And then to the right of incident, once something happens, how do you, how do you uh, detect it? How do you investigate it? How do you preserve that evidence, mitigate it, and contain it? And so from a KPMC standpoint, you would think it was almost like a turnkey risk governance vision through operations to detection. Yeah, and you help them to really protect themselves, too, I would think, in helping them to set up policies and 
training of those policies. Is, am I correct on that, too? Uh, de- definitely. So what, what we look at is uh, we really look at an overall risk governance methodology that will align all the components of the cyber programs that our clients have and make sure that they're aligned to their business priorities, not necessarily their architecture. A lot of companies just look at their network architecture, their technology, and they, they sort of leave their business operations and priorities to the side. What we do from a risk governance standpoint is uh, go in with a methodology that, that aligns the components of the cyber program to the business priorities. Yeah. A lot of people think cyber is all doing with technology, but, you know, what I hear over and over from security people is that this, you know, it's it's a human issue, too, because you, you get these social engineers that can get into you know, make friends with people who are in the IT department or somehow get into uh, into the businesses and do things. Can you talk a little bit about the social engineering issue? Because I think people really aren't aware of how much that affects the, the cyber risk, right? Oh, sure, definitely. So the social engineering from the outside and even from the inside. So if we look at threat, uh, social engineering threat externally and internally, uh, let's go with external first. There's been a huge trend over the last year and a half uh, in utilizing social engineering techniques, almost like a spear phishing uh, attack, but it's not an attack. It's uh, an attempt at impersonating the executive uh, leadership of a company, CEO, CFO, CIO, or COO, Chief Operating Officer. And in doing that, in a social engineered email, making it seem like it's that CEO asking for another part of the company to pay an attached invoice. The FBI recent released the released the Internet Crime Complaint Center as part of the FBI released uh, that there's really hundreds of millions in dollars in fraud taking place from just that kind of social engineering campaign. Mm-hmm. So external social engineering, where before they would just uh, try to isolate to get people to open or click on an email or open an attachment. Now it's getting a little more tactical, where it's actually sending fake attachments, fake invoices, or going after the third-party vendors of a company and doing the exact same thing, uh, uh, act, acting as if they're, the, uh, say, our clients, uh, a corporation, uh, and asking for payment of an invoice and putting in, of course, uh, their own transaction and routing codes for the money to be moved. So social engineering at the corporate level remains a huge threat, as well as individual level, as you, as you know, having been an identity theft uh, specialist for such a long time. So, so Ron, they're, uh, they're impersonating um, the company, and then they send to a vendor to pay, and then it goes to somebody else's account. Is that right? So are, are they a dirty insider doing this, or are they outsiders doing this? So the, yeah, they're outsiders, but it's... It, it, this type of fraud is taking on a multifaceted approach, so I'll give you a couple of them. Outsider, uh, this is an organized crime. This is Eastern European with some other uh, African organized crime. What they're doing is is they're, they're focusing on and doing a little research related to who runs a corporation. Uh-huh. And they're spoofing, and the easiest cases are is where they spoof this, uh, the CEO, the CFO's email. And basically make it look like an email is coming from the CFO or CEO to the head of procurement or somebody in procurement uh, with an attached invoice saying, please, uh, ran into so-and-so at a conference where we owe them X amount of dollars. Usually it's under a threshold of $100,000 uh, or 50000 Please, Please expedite payment. And 
companies aren't used to seeing the the CEO or the CFO actually send an attached bill, say, please please expedite. That's the social engineering brilliance, if you will, from uh, from uh, for lack of a better term, yeah, related to yeah. the, you know the the ingenuity, if you will, in this threat. Right. So that's what that's one piece. The other piece on the vendors is they're actually attempting to hack the vendors, mm. or they're doing the spoofing of the email from the vendor to to the uh, prime contractor uh, oh. of the vendor. And so I've seen one incidence where they've actually ha- uh, hacked the vendor's uh, uh, procurement payment procurement system and changed the transaction transaction and routing codes. The client did not uh, figure that out. The company did not figure that out uh, until about 100 days later when the their vendor reached out to them and said, hey, you've been a 20-year client of ours, a, a partner of ours. This is the first time you've ever paid on time. Oh, wow. How do you prevent something like that? That has to be a lot of training, basically, that you have to scrutinize every single email or, or contact or phone call that you get. I mean, that's that to me would be like really training your people to be very distrusting of any kind of uh, a contact that, that isn't verified. So, yeah, a couple of ways. Technically, you spam filters or... Uh whitelisting or blacklisting of a certain uh, domain. So if, if you know that you, your domain is abc.com and, yeah. and abc.net's uh, top-level domain comes in or abc.info comes in, then, then to bl- you'd want to block that in your uh, uh, filters uh, for spam. So that preventing that email from ever getting in there. The other side of it, and I think probably more importantly, is cultural, the cultural education side yeah, of it. Just yeah. making sure your employees understand that uh, there's uh, scam artists, uh, social engineers out there that are going to try anything to to steal information from you, but more importantly uh, for them, anything that's fungible that makes them money to uh, ask you or get you to act in movement of money, credit card information, uh, PII, PHI, etc. Yeah. You know, Ron, we had, uh, I just want to tell my audience, if you just started listening in, this is fascinating. We're speaking with Ron Plesko, who's an attorney and advisory principal and the national lead of KPMG's Cyber Investigations, Intelligence and Analytic Practice. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, people can be spoofed so easily. I had, uh, I know he, um you are familiar with Kevin Mitnick, and he's been on our show, believe it or not, a couple times for his books, uh, the the art of intrusion and the art of deception. And he is he was the master of social engineering, and he you know went to jail for it and uh, came out, and now he's a security expert. But I mean, some of the things that people are are so sucked into, you know, somebody comes in and says, "I'm supposed to be fixing the the plumbing in your office," and then they really go in and they fix something else in the computers or something so i mean it's uh it's it's amazing how people can get duped and somebody get into your company right right uh, no I, I agree and uh, I, I do know kevin um and i look at social engineering as one of the main threats and, and if you think about it from a corporate standpoint corporations have to really consider what information that they're putting out there about themselves that social engineers will data mine and mine better understand the corporation the organization, uh, personalities, who runs what, and use that information. Uh, and so when we look at uh, our clients and we look external, we look at what is really their digital footprint. And things such as how, how do you do procurement, procurement guides, onboarding, 
those type of uh, documents don't necessarily have to be out there on the net because what we find is the social engineers, the organized criminals, actually grab that information, wow. figure out the weakest link in a big you know fortune 100 company you're not going to come through the front door you're going to try to either have an insider use some type of social engineering or you're going to go after the third-party vendors to try to get in uh so if you think about digital footprint and limiting doing some type of limiting of that digital footprint that's really what it's about yeah you know i was recently reading um the 2014 um, a study of uh, by the Association of Fraud Examiners, and they were saying, and this kind of freaked me out, that um, so much of the fraud actually happens from people who have been inside, executives who've been inside maybe eight to ten years, and they get in with collusion to commit fraud. So that, that I just wondered if you were finding that same kind of um, challenge um, that, that they came out with. Sure, and I, I, I have read that study, too, and I, I agree with that. I think that I, I've had one incident pre-KPMG. I, as you said, I used to run a worldwide nonprofit, partnered with about 2,000 companies, and I still chair that nonprofit. And I, in one incident, they had an insider working for 10 years, mm. you know, giving out, giving out information. Giving that, and, and what we find is, is those, and I'm part of the forensic practice inside of KPMG, we have a whole investigations practice that looks at how do you put controls over uh, um, the employees, looking at the employees' access to information, et cetera? And so I look at that and, and I say, you know, what was wrong with that company? Well, once that individual was in, they were trusted. You know, right. Most companies do a, do a background, track, uh, background check on onboarding. They don't do them manually. So if you look at what the uh, ACFE, the Associated of Cert- uh, Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, Really, to put it out, you have individuals in a trusted position. Yeah, you have to do regular background checks, just not at right. the onboarding. Right. So there's a lot of good guidance uh, that ACFE and other organizations put put out there related to watching that insider threat. Right, kind of auditing where they're going, what they're doing. Yeah, I just uh, recently met with some friends who have a company, and they found out that their CEO was um, siphoning money out, and, and what they were doing was buying things from these office, you know, spending thousands of dollars buying things from these office office max or office whatever the office clubs and um and then um kind of selling them to other people. <laughs> I mean it was just amazing. Uh, I mean it just this person had worked for them for like 8 years, a trusted friend. They had gone out of their way for this person. It just it just uh, kind of blew my mind. So that that kind of was on my on my top of my head hearing this from some friends of ours. That's crazy. Yeah. Mario, I would agree. Uh, the ingenuity and the brashness of the process uh, insiders, especially, uh, uh, I, I used to be floored by it. Now, now you almost expect it. And really, uh, you know, look at our clients; they have to put in some type of program methodology to detect that from a risk governance standpoint. And that's sort of you know, that's sort of the whack-a-mole game that everyone plays, not only in cyber but in fraud detection. How yeah. do you stay one step ahead? How do you audit that? How do you, how do you make sure it's not? Right. And, you know, it's, it's especially hard for when, you know, here we are sitting um, on the campus and we have a lot of companies driving by there. You know, most of the companies in this country are, are small, medium-sized businesses and not everything, not everybody is, you know, a Target or Anthem or whatever. And, um, you know, it's hard. For, it's even harder for them because if they have, you know, 50 people working for them, it's it's almost like a family and it's, or, or less, you know, it's even worse. Right. 
Exactly. I think if you think about the small caps and you know smaller businesses, under fifty people, or under twenty people, right? Usually, they outsource a lot of their information security, or they might even have the uh, you know an organization come and do that for them. So it's all resourced out. Or they might have one individual whose uh, day job is something else, and whose midnight and bedtime job is information security for the organization. Right. So they you know they have such a finite budget, and for them to really prioritize on protection and using that finite budget, that's a challenge. Uh, we, we do work with a couple small business association groups to assist in getting the messaging out as it relates to that. How do you do that? How do you do that tactically? Yes, uh, I think that's effect. really important is that the small business uh, get, get that kind of help because it really is tough on them, and it, it's tough enough on the big companies, let alone the little ones. So what are right. some of the top cyber threats that are facing U.S. companies of, of all sizes right now? If sure. Uh, if I look at it, and I look at it from a geo-cyber standpoint, I mean, geographically uh, uh, around the world, U- U.S., businesses, Western businesses, depending upon the sector they're in, it's, it's sort of sector-specific, but let's, let's start at a 70,000-foot view. The organized criminals, whether they be uh, Eastern Eastern European, Asia-Pacific region, uh, or um, South African organized crime, what they're all looking for is anything that can make them money, right. anything that is fungible. So from a fungibility standpoint, the, they're going to come after not just the large retailers and a lot of the companies that have been in the, in the news over the last couple of years, any entity that collects anything that they can make money selling. Right. So most com- companies, I think, you know, some, somewhat naively say, well, we're not, we don't collect credit cards, so we're not going to be targeted. <laughs> That's, you know, when I say that na- naively, I see a lot of targeting by different organized crime groups of healthcare information, right. employee, of employee information. Right. Coming at you know coming after HR, trying to get into their records uh, right. because there's a, there's a huge black market for healthcare credentials. Right. So you know my my group policy number, my uh, my um, any of my insurance information is actually worth more than, uh, on the black market than a than a credit card is. On mm-hmm. the black mm-hmm. So so if you think about that, and then you say, well, what else do they have? Well, that procurement example I gave you earlier, procurement and, and payment of not only uh, vendors. Uh, supply chain, whatever, but also payment of employees, their payment processing, how yes. they do payment processing, right? And coming coming after that for uh, ACH account clearinghouse or WTF wire transfer fraud yes. uh, schemes. So if I think of any corporation, I, I prioritize. Well, what do they do? You know, if oil and gas company, etc. Then they're going to be targeted maybe by nation states and also those organized criminal groups. Uh, and then if they don't do that, then definitely the organized criminal groups. And then the third piece is in the business that they're in, are they in the public eye? And if they're in the public eye and they're seen as part of a political entity or pushing the agenda of a nation state, then they may be targeted by activists or hacktivists. Right. So really, companies need to break down and understand exactly where they are, who's most likely targeting them, what entities are, what the uh, tactic techniques and procedures, the TTPs of those threat actors are, how do they go about it, what is their modus operandi, and then protect that information in kind. So prioritize those information assets from the uh, organizations that are coming after it, and then protect that information. And, of course, do that from a return on investment standpoint. Invest as needed to protect the keys to the kingdom and then diminishing as you get down the chain of uh, information assets. 
Yeah, and you know when you when you talk about um, you know companies think, oh well, I don't collect credit card information or I don't keep it. That's not a big deal. But you know we do know that the social security number and like you said, the health information is is really out there. And and I'm thinking again about these small companies that don't encrypt. Um, you know, at least if you're encrypting information and you're keeping it so that if somebody not just c- encrypting it uh, in transit, but encrypting it when it's in files. And <laughs> I mean, there's just so much. I don't know how you sleep at night being kind of like in charge of this. I mean, honestly, how do you? I, uh, so, pretty soundly, honestly. <laughs> I, I, I will say that some of the things that keep me up, if you will, if that's where you're going, uh, I worry about the disruptive and destructive attacks. So as new code is released out there, so we go Stuxnet years ago, and you, you deal with code like that that goes that enables and is being sold in the underground. Uh, it might might have been used for one thing to grab usernames and passwords for bank accounts or brokerage accounts. All of a sudden, another use is to grab username and passwords for systems administrative controls for an uh, industrial control system that runs a public waterworks. See, yeah, and that I, scares it, me. Yeah, yeah, right. So, if I look at the history, there's been some history related to that here in the United States. I, I used to work at the National Cybersecurity Division, uh, the United States CERT, and I was one of the early employees as a contractor there. And that those type of attacks, the critical infrastructure targeting. Yeah. Is really in disruptive attacks related to that are really what keeps me up at night. Now, for our clients, you know, they they run the gamut, and as as we deal with our clients and see what's happening to them, what I, what I see is the TTPs, the tactic techniques, you know, procedures that have worked in one quick one industry, one vertical, quickly are being brought into another to go after it for a different reason. Mm-hmm. And so that, that that to me is pretty telling when you, when you have movement saved by Eastern European uh, criminals. Years ago, they were all about credit cards, stealing credit card and ID information. Now, they're about stealing any identity information that can gain access and selling that, and then selling on the black market access to public control, water systems, etc. That's that's where it becomes problematic. Yeah. That, that's, that keeps me up at night. Yeah, I mean, I worry about, you know, just imagine, and, and I hate to be you know, looking at negative things because I'm a pretty positive person. But, you know, when I really start to think about it, I think if, you know, China or Russia or any of, of those countries that, that really could get into a war with us, it would be a cyber war. I mean, they could literally shut down our water system, our electrical system, our cell system, right? For for, And I think that is where we really need to focus on how do we protect that and... Right, and I, and I think there's a lot, a lot of changes in that uh, from this administration, past administrations, are really prioritizing this cyber. For I do a lot of speaking to our boards of directors of our clients, uh, the audit committee, the risk committee. Cyber is definitely a top of house, meaning top of the corporation issue that's coming from the board on down. And if I think about what you just said, I, I take solace in this fact. Some of the nation states that you mentioned, their economies are so inextricably intertwined with our economies right. that unless, you know, there's all-out warfare related to something, you're not going to see those type of cyber attacks. The ones that I'm concerned about, cyber terrorists and activist groups that get the right kind of code to do right. destructive attacks. So I, I think, you know, a lot is made related to the nation state. Uh, there's intelligence gathering, definitely. There's, you know, jump-starting R&D cycle by state. 
deal in the United States intellectual property, sure, that's all taking place. I'm not going to argue that it's not. I worry about that former issue, that issue of uh, the other groups that I've The terrorists, yeah, yeah. You got it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we got to end on something really positive. You're doing great work. (laughs) 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 Because, yeah. So can you tell me something? We only have about a minute left. Can you just tell me something positive? Because I hate to leave my audience with it, you know, thinking, oh, my God, it's the doomsday here. Sure. From a positive standpoint, I'll I'll echo what I echoed before. This is a top-of-house issue. For It used to be maybe just the super oils, uh, super financials, and brokerage houses. Uh, if you will, that are taking on this issue. This issue is being taken on not only in the public policy uh, arena, but this is being taken on in almost every boardroom in the country. National Association of Corporate Directors and other organizations are out there pounding the pavement from a risk governance standpoint, driving this into the, uh, the boards of all different size corporations. Well, thank it's, God. <laughs> yep, <laughs> thank yep. you. So I think, I think that's positive. You know, okay. it's, it's getting the spotlight that it needs. Yeah, well, Ron, we are just out of time, so just give your website, and then it is really time to go. Thanks. Sure. We're with, uh, I'm at uh, www.kpmg.com US. All right. Well, we will hopefully see you very soon, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, Mari. I appreciate it. Okay, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine at KUCI.org. On the net, I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.